0: That's the sound of a female lion calling for a male to mate with. Biologists like Aristotle and Charles Darwin once theorized that when it comes to mating, female animals are always monogamous and selective, while their male counterparts have a robust and diverse sex life. In the case of lions, that couldn't be further from the truth. According to contemporary biologists, female lions are known to mate up to 100 times a day during their sexual peak, often with multiple partners. The myth of female monogamy in the animal kingdom is one of many fallacies that have dominated the field for centuries. Why do these biases still exist? Coming up, how evolutionary biologists got female animals all wrong. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. To share your thoughts or have your questions answered on future shows, tweet us at 1A. Let's get into the conversation. Joining us now is one of the zoologists helping to set the record straight, Lucy Cook. She's a broadcaster and the author of Bitch on the Female of the Species. Lucy, welcome to 1A.
1: Hello, Jen. Thanks for having me.
0: Let's start with a little evolutionary biology 101. Aristotle's been called the first biologist of the Western world. What were some of his major theories and what imprint have they left on the field?
1: Well, Aristotle had a had a belief that that males were were active and females were passive. And this was because females make eggs and 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 males make these sort of lots of mobile sperm. And, you know, he was in it you know, he was, as you say, he was he was the grandfather of, of zoology. He he invented the science, you know, so his sort of thinkings were, were hugely influential and, and Charles Darwin, when he came to write his theory of sexual selection and define the sexes, he must have read, he would no doubt have read Aristotle and, and they would have informed his, his opinion, which was similarly that, that males were active and, and females were passive. Now, Darwin
0: published On the Origin of the Species in 1859, which became one of the pillars of evolutionary biology. What was he arguing in that?
1: Oh, I mean, it, it, on the Origin of the Species is 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 a fantastic uh, piece of work, and and uh, he only mentioned sexual selection very briefly in there, where he outlined the, the 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 different roles of the sexes, in which he said that that males were more ardent than females, and and were and were, were, were the ones that, were, that would that would that would compete with one another in order to. Um, win females and females would would choose males and that this also drove uh, evolution alongside natural selection he, he called it sexual selection he, he it was it was a quest for sex basically that 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 shaped certain extravagant traits like the uh, the horns of a stag or a peacock's tail how relevant are darwin's theories in the field today well, I mean, you know, I am I'm, I'm a huge fan of Darwin. I studied evolutionary biology. He's he was a meticulous and brilliant scientist and his theory of evolution by natural selection still stands as one of the greatest theories of all time. So, I want to be clear that I'm in no way bashing Darwin as a scientist because he was brilliant and and his theory of evolution is 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 is, is, is fantastic. But um, he was he was a man of his time. So, and what's really fascinating is is, is for me to discover is how vulnerable zoology has. Been been over the years to cultural bias basically and you have a scientist who's as meticulous and careful and fantastic as darwin and even he isn't immune so when he came to define the sexes in his theory of sexual selection he ended up branding the female of the species in the shape of a victorian housewife because that was what was seemly at the time but then because darwin said it all this and he's a genius all the scientists that followed in his wake for for decades over a century suffered from a chronic case of confirmation bias and only looked what fitted into Darwin's paradigm um, or simply ignored females altogether because males were the main event. Females were just a feminine footnote to the macho main event. Well, I want to read a short passage from your introduction. You write, quote, the stereotypes of
0: female passivity and male vigor are as old as zoology itself. Such an endurance test of time suggests they've felt right to generations of scientists, but that doesn't mean they are. One thing science in every domain has taught us is that our intuitions often lead us astray. The main problem with this neat binary classification is it's wrong. Try explaining the need to be passive to a dominant female spotted hyena, and she'll laugh in your face after she's bitten it off. One of the things that was really fascinating about the book was how there seems to have formed this sort of closed loop of information where zoologists were driven by their own misogyny. It, it bled into the science, but then beliefs about female animals in the wild also fed into the cultural beliefs about women in, in, as, in, in the human culture. And I'm curious how you came away after you did your research, what you came to understand about that loop of information
1: yeah i mean that's a really v- valid point i mean the, the most sort of pernicious thing about this but uh is is it's boomerang nature you know what what started out as victorian misogyny was incubated by a century and a half of science and then spat out um you know to to to, to tell us how hu- human females should behave rubber stamped by darwin you know and 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 and, and you know, and I think that that's you know that's something that's still going on today. You know, people are still you know there's plenty of evolutionary psychologists out there who are selling lots of books um, based on on Darwin's drawing of of, of the um, sex roles, and um, and the fact of the matter is is that there's we we've, we've moved on from there. You know, we, we we now know that females are just as aggressive, promiscuous, dominant, varied, and dynamic as males. So we just shouldn't be trotting out these same old stereotypes. Well,
0: we'll get into specific species in a moment, but first how do biologists differentiate between male and female?
1: So yes, so animals don't uh, but, uh, so scientists don't think that animals have gender because gender is a is a is a is a human uh, social and psychological um, co- construct. But so when we talk about male and female, we're talking about biological sex and biological sex is de- is is defined by what gametes, what sex cells you produce, whether you produce eggs or sperm. Um, now, you know that 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 generally works to sort of you know, segregate um, most, most creatures, but there are, there are an awful lot of creatures where it, it's very difficult to, to draw a line between, you know, they may well produce both may, um, sperm and eggs or, or a mixture of some at some times and others. So um, even, even that is, can be problematic, but that is basically how we define sex. Can animals
0: be neither male nor female or both?
1: Oh, absolutely! Yeah, yeah. You get you get lots of there. There there are huge amounts of um, of of creatures, hermaphrodites that are able to. I mean, some some change sex several times a day. Uh, there are C- some. Can you give us an will, example will, will, of, of that? There's, 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 there's a salmon that, uh, there, there, there's, a, there's, a, there's a form of fish, I think it's a type of salmon that can change sex several times a day. But there are over 500 species of fish that, that regularly change sex, maybe just once in their lifetime, sometimes many times. Um, the most famous, of course, is, is the clownfish, the anemone or anemone fish, famous for starring in Finding Nemo um and in that case you have a male and a female the females dominant she's much bigger than the male um and they live in these small family groups you have a, a female and her partner male and then a couple of immature males that live with them and if you if the female dominant female is is removed as she dies then the male would transition into a female and then and one of the immature males will become her sexual partner um which of course me, would mean a biological act, accurate version of finding nemo would be a very different film because the the um the the, uh, the, the the nemo's father would would end up um being his sexual partner so uh, it's a very different, different film. film for for disney very very different film but but what's really fascinating when you study this change in Justin Rhodes who's in Ohio who's been studying this is that the fish, um, almost immediately, when you take that female, dominant female out, the male fish almost immediately starts behaving as a female and is recognised as a female by other fish. But its gonads um, take up to a year to catch up, so the gonads are still officially male, but the behaviour and the sexual identity of the fish is female. So, really suggests the sort of complexities of sex and um, that, 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 that there are out there amongst, amongst all creatures.
0: I, I wonder. Lucy, how much of the complexity we now know about female animals is connected to how technology has evolved? um, The ability to observe animals more closely has evolved? Does that have something to do with it?
1: Well, you know, that's a really good point, Jen. Um, uh, We we have the technology. I mean, for example take um the penis i hope i'm not going to shock anybody by using graphic language at this time but um so so for for, for decades you know taxonomists have been ob- obsessed with penises you know they, they, they come in all sorts of variation right so they've been hugely catalogued and lots of theories around them but whereas vaginas have been completely unstudied right completely just assume that they are a passive receptacle for the penis and there's absolutely nothing going on there right and um, but of course now we have the technology we're able and it is harder you know it's to study things that are internal than things that are sticking out. Do you know what I mean? So there is some excuse there. But one of the amazing things that's come from Patricia Brennan, who's who does study vaginas, is that she, she's found that, you know, they're just as complex um, structurally as as, as penises. And, and what she's found is this, that... Um, you know, that they actually, you know, in ducks, for example, where where unfortunately sexual coercion is is, is commonplace and, and males have these extravagant long corkscrew penises. Um, and it, for a long time it was thought that these long extravagant corkscrew penises were a result of male competition and that, you know, the longest penis gets to fertilise the egg basically in these sort of um, rather aggressive coercive acts. Well, what she's found is actually... By, look, by being the first person to look at the vagina, it's found that it's full of blind pouches and, and actually what happens is the, the penis in a sexually coercive situation gets stuck and doesn't actually unfurl properly and, and so doesn't fertilise the eggs. And so... You know, the female's actually a winner in that story because she manages to retain paternity of uh, you know, and, and say who who fertilizes her eggs. So, you know, it's really important to do this work because it otherwise we'll just assume that females are passive victims when actually females have loads of strategies, sexual and otherwise, you know, that, that, that make them full active players in, in, in evolution.
0: We got this email from Maggie who says, can you please ask your guest about the role of female wolves in a pack? I've been fascinated by wolves and wolf pack culture since I was a small kid. I'm now realizing that what I think I know about wolves may be outdated. Lucy, what
1: can you tell us? well wolves are not one of the species that I've, I've i've studied but i i'm pretty sure that they are a species where you have co-dominance and that the the um you know you always have this sort of idea of a lone wolf don't you and then the, the the males out there hunting all by himself but as far as i understand it i think the pet that the 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 male and the female work together and there's there's co-dominance. But <clears throat> I have to put my hand up and say that wolves are not a species that I've studied. So it's, it's not, uh, um, if you, could, you can ask me about hyenas and I can tell you about those, but then <laughs> quite different from wolves. Well, let's get to female
0: lions, which we mentioned at the top of the show. You write about observing lions in the savannah in southwest Kenya. What did you learn?
1: Oh, well, this so this was the the first inkling that I had that that that, that female animals didn't fit the paradigm that I'd been taught at university, um, and I was I was doing a, a BBC documentary about lion communicate lion communication and and. Um, we were doing a playback experiment where you play the sound of a lion's roar in another lion's territory and attempt to sort of have a have a conversation with that lion. You know, attempt to attract the other male lion and engage him in a in a roaring contest. Well, what happened was I ended up roaring so loudly that I, I stole a lion's girlfriend, which was, <laughs> which was. Not, not what I'd expected. So we, we played our sound of our, our roar. And then in the distance, we heard another roar. And eventually, we attracted not one but three lions, two males and a female. Now, the males, when they didn't find anything that looked or smelt like a lion, they, they, they went off. But the female remained and lay on the ground, legs akimbo, pinning us to the spot for two hours. And I said to the German lion specialist that I was with, I was like, what's going on? And he's like, oh, she wants to mate with us. And I was like, but, you know, isn't she mating with one of those males? He's like, oh, yeah, yeah, but she's very promiscuous. In your, as you said in your intro, she'll mate with lots of males over, over during her estrus period. And, 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 you know, I was just blown away. I was like, well, that wasn't what I was taught at university. Like, how come? You know, so it, that sort of started off this quest of me trying to find out. And, of course... You know, I I was at college in the in the late eighties, early nineties, and 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 things have moved on dramatically since then. But but yet, this you know, the textbooks are are taking a long time to catch up. But. Um, Sarah blaffer who's this amazing scientist and was really sort of like a pioneer in, 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 in challenging these stereotypes and really being amongst the first to, to say, rather than ignore, say, the licentious promiscuity of the lioness, but actually to go, hey, hang on, that's interesting. Well, what, study what are that. the
0: evolutionary benefits to female animals having sex with multiple partners?
1: Well, they're, 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 there are many of them. So in the case of the lioness, what she's doing is she's preventing infanticide. So male lions... Are infanticidal. You know that if, if a male takes over a territory and the females there uh, have young cubs, they may well kill the cubs, right? But the reason why Sarah Blaffer worked out the reason why they're doing that is because it forces the females into estrus, so they're ready and receptive to have their babies rather than waiting for her to finish nursing those cubs. And for we them should to just mention receptive.
0: that estrus is is this period of fertility for female mammals. Oh yeah. Sorry. You know, no worries. Yeah. Go ahead.
1: Th- Thanks, Jen. Sorry about that. <laughs> um, so yeah, so so it forces the females into oestrus. So. The female, by by mating multiply with all the males in the area, she's basically confusing paternity, so that the males won't be infanticidal. Um, so it's it's a really it's a really clever strategy, basically. Um, so that's one reason why females w- would benefit from multiple mating. We know that that exists now in, in over fifty species. I mean, some females are, are sort of positively exhausting. You know, like um, there's a there's Barbary macaques. <clears throat> there was a study done where they found that. The females in a group w- were observed having sex every 17 minutes with every member of the group. I mean, it's exhausting, the idea of that. But that's, again, to prevent infanticide. Now, when it comes to songbirds, say, for example, which we always think of as being, you know, paragons of monogamy. Well, Patricia Goarty, she actually did DNA fingerprinting on a clutch of eggs and found that, it's not so it's so there's a big difference between social and sexual monogamy and birds do s- social monogamy very well but they don't do sexual monogamy so well because a single clutch of eggs gen- generally has multiple fathers and the reason is obvious don't put all your eggs in one basket by 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 mating with multiple males you're you're increasing the sort of chances of hitting genetic compatibility with one of the males. So it all makes sense when viewed, you know, and and these are all, you know, these are all important things to understand.
0: We'll be back with more in just a moment. Remember to join future conversations, download our 1A Vox Pop app and leave us a message. Let's get back to our conversation. Lucy, I want to talk about the doting mother myth. There are plenty of examples of doting motherhood in the animal kingdom, especially among mammals. But the role of the mother varies greatly across species. And you spotlight the jacana bird in particular. Tell us about it.
1: Yes, absolutely. Oh, yes, the Giacana bird. I spent a very sweaty afternoon in Nicaragua um, observing Giacana birds because jacana it, it, birds are, are just one of, of, of many where it, it's the male that does all of the caregiving. So the female will just lay the eggs and... Um, and then she goes off and she she does all the fighting and territorial defense and and leaves the, the the she actually has a harem of three or four males that she mates with many times and and so they 're effectively cuckolded they 're raising um eggs in in nests and they, they're not entirely may or may not be theirs in fact but um but they are and they 're doting doting fathers and and um so you find this in the animal kingdom a lot that 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 you know males males do a lot of of, of nurturing. Uh, and in some cases, the females do nothing more than, than lay the eggs. Um, frogs are another great example where you have males who are a candidate for nature's best dad.
0: Wow. So what does this variety in motherhood styles tell you about the role of female animals more, more broadly?
1: Well, I tell you what's really fascinating is that they've just... um, Lauren O'Connell, who's at Stanford, she has managed to... Uh, she's a neurobiologist and she's found this sort of switch for parenting that exists in the brain Um, and she she was actually studying frogs because as I said with frogs you find that there's sometimes the females do the parental care and sometimes it's the males so she looked inside their brains and and found this galanin neuron hub um, that when activated made uh, the, the 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 frog the individual's Behave in a in a caring and nurturing fashion. So that's that's basically the switch for not not maternal instinct but parental instinct because it's exactly the same in males and females. And then a few years later, Catherine Dulac, who's at Harvard, found exactly the same switch, this galanin neuron hub in the in the in the brains of mice, uh, male and female mice, and she's confident that it'll exist in humans as well. So so what that tells us is that is that. You know, rather than it being a, a maternal instinct, it's actually a, a parental instinct, and and it exists in, in, in all of us. It, 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 but it needs to be triggered. That's the thing. And although we, we don't know yet exactly what what triggers it, it's probably a, a mixture of, of hormones and and um, an external external stimuli that, that trigger the trigger the switch. But um, it, it's it's gratifying to know that 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 both that, that, that this, this 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 instinct exists in all of us.
0: Well, Darwin's theory of natural selection centers on males competing with males, but females in many species fight constantly for various reasons, including meerkats, and this is one of the more vivid sections of the book, but tell us about these very pugnacious mammals.
1: Yeah so we think about motherhood as being you know just about nurturing but actually being a good mother might be if you're in the case of a lion you know having a having a lot of sex with with the neighboring males in the in the vicinity or if you're a meerkat meerkat it will mean being a being a, a a very aggressive and competitive individual in order to hold that top spot so meerkats recently there was a study that found that a survey of a thousand mammals, which was the most murderous mammal on the planet and the, and the number one wasn't a human, it was the meerkat and meerkat society is predicated on on ruthless competition between females um, and um and they will they will basically readily um kill each other's babies. But they're kept in check by this dominant female who prevents all the other females in her family group. They live in these extended family groups. She prevents them from breeding by by um, by, by threatening them basically. And and if, if they do, then she'll she'll kill their babies and evict her from the group, um, which is basically a death sentence. And then they're allowed back in if they wet nurse her babies. So that means that all of her energy is just spent on on, on actually pregnancy and, and giving birth, and and not the waste of of. Lack Lactation. That's her, um, her sisters. So, so yeah, every meerkat has a one in five chance of being killed by another meerkat, most likely its own mother or sister. So wow. meerkat society is tense and homicidal and it's the females that are the aggressive competitive ones because they want to be good mothers. Well, well how do dominant
0: females shape which uh, species and, and traits get passed on?
1: Um, Well, the dominant female has 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 total control and she does it by by being aggressive and competitive. You know, that that's how she does it. You know, I mean, the, the, the most extreme example of this is the naked mole rat, which is an amazing creature. Google it, I, everybody needs to see what a naked mole rat looks like. Um, it's extraordinary, hairless creature that lives underground in, in Kenya and, um, and eastern Africa. And they live in these colonies of up to 300. And they're just like social insects in that there's just one breeding queen. This is a mammal where you just have this one female that dominates all of the reproduction and she actively suppresses the reproduction of the other females and and, and males in the group by being an aggressive bully, by, by going on this sort of relentless royal tour and sort of pushing and shoving the the and the stress of that actually prevents all the other members of the colony other than her two chosen mates from going through puberty so they can't reproduce that, that she she's bullying them so that they they she, she can dominate the situation so she completely controls it yeah wow. in this extraordinary way she's she's just like an, a social like a termite queen basically um which is amazing and and as such it means that she can be incredibly successful and have like way more pups than than. than than an animal her size would would normally have.
0: Well, up until this point, we've we've talked about male-female partnerships in the animal kingdom, but some members of some species opt out of heterosexual pairings, including the albatross. Tell us about the albatross.
1: Oh, this was an amazing story. Yeah, I went to Hawaii um, because... There's a colony there of Laysan albatross on Oahu um, that have been studied for 50 years. And there was this phenomena that, that, that the, the albatross, we all know albatross, they form these monogamous partnerships. And, you know, that you, you need to have two birds to diligently raise a chick because it takes six months for the chicks to fledge. So, you know, it's, it, it takes a tag team in order to be able to achieve that, right? But in this particular colony, they had this... Um, Phenomena of, of t- some, some some nests had two eggs. Now, it's physically impossible for a female albatross to lay more than one egg. So they didn't know what was going on. And for years, there were all these sort of bizarre excuses. Until Lindsay Young came along and uh, her colleague, they were like, mm, have we checked these couples are... Uh, all male-female couples were assuming they are because they everybody looks the same, but but are they? And sure enough, she did DNA testing on the feathers of of the, of the all the nests on the colony and found that a third of the of the nests on the colony were female-female couples. And basically, what was happening is. There's a shortage of males in this particular colony. And so the females were basically having sex with other albatross husbands and then shacking up with another female to, to raise the chicks. And And some of these females... And, and that accounts for the double eggs, right? So then the two females would both lay an egg. Um, and that, that was why there were these double clutches. Now, some of these partnerships might just last one season and a female might shack up with another female and then the next season she might meet a male but some of them were incredibly enduring like there was one couple that I met there that had been together 17 years and they have um, eight eight chicks, three grand chicks. They're amongst the most successful couples on the on the colony because it just works. And Lindsay told me that they do all the same lovey dovey stuff, all the cooing and preening and bird kissing and and you know all the stuff that makes their pair bond incredibly strong. And they just they just work together as a couple. You know, so it's just fascinating to see. I think that was the thing that really struck me while doing the research on this is just the flexibility of sex and its expression in nature is just amazing, you know.
0: You also write about species where males aren't needed for reproduction or don't exist at all. Can you give us an example or two?
1: Yeah, there's there's one on Hawaii actually that I went to find just after I I checked out the albatross. There's a there's a gecko, the morning gecko that you find on Hawaii. You actually find it on pretty much any Pacific island that you go to, and this is a species that is dispensed with males altogether. So <laughs> they, 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 you know, they, they have sort of um, once upon a time there, there were males, but but now the females have evolved the, uh, to sort of the, the trick of parthenogenesis. They're able to reproduce just by cloning. So they don't, they don't, they have no need for males. But what's really fascinating is that the females even though you know they don't they don't need sperm in order to to produce a, to fertilize their egg they can just they they can just create a clone just by themselves. They still go through the charade of courtship but with another female and they they act out these um these sexual behaviors which is really fascinating and and obviously indicates that in some ways that's um Helpful for pair bonding, or uh, we don't, you know, we don't really know. But uh, yeah, there, there are there are plenty of um, females out there that, that that are able to clone themselves, which is, you know, amazing, really. Alice tweeted, "My daughter is headed to college
0: in the fall and wants to be a wildlife biologist because of Lucy. Thank you for having her on the show. We also got this question from Elijah, who says, "Can you touch a little on how these findings will affect future research? Do you have any predictions on how this might change things in zoology or society?" Your thoughts, Lucy.
1: Well, I think that's a really interesting question. And I think that, you know, that the science uh, of sexual selection is in the throes of a paradigm shift. You know, we are, you know incorporating this new female agency into models and 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 you know it it it, it thing opinions are shifting but but you know it takes a long time for change to happen and i think that uh, it, it, it it's surprising how long it, it it takes to for 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 these these paradigms to 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 shift and change but we're definitely seeing that that, that that's a sort of live situations happening now and i really hope my book is part of, of of bringing that to the popular culture as well because i think that's it, there's something about this idea that females are passive victims and males are in charge and dominant and, you know, that we seem culturally wedded to, you know. Uh, and um, and so I really hope that sort of by understanding the animal kingdom and seeing the glorious diversity of female form and and, and behavior there, that, that that would, you know, bring down these stereotypes once and for all.
0: Part of what was interesting in the book, just really fascinating actually, was the amount of resistance new discoveries uh, mm-hmm. around <laughs> female animals uh, received, the amount of pushback. Um, and even in in one case, we talked about the albatross uh, research there and how that scientist, I, I, I'm not recalling her name, but how she was certain that she'd done her her research incorrectly, even though mm. she confirmed it over and over and over and over again and what do you think it will take to overcome that whatever that dynamic is either the the pushback that's really fed by cultural beliefs about human behavior but also those those biases we have internally
1: well, I think that what, what what needs to happen, the answer to this, the simple answer is diversity, right? So it was it was it was female voices being educated and having the same education as men who came into question the sort of Darwin's sexist paradigm, you know, in, the, in starting in the late 1980s that that helped force that change, and and now this sort of heteronormative bias, uh, as we have with say the 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 albatross, you know we need a, a, a diversity of, of genders, sexualities and cultures, you know, to be part of science and to have senior jobs in science, to be asking questions and interrogating things from, from that standpoint. Because, you know, science is based on questions. You know, you ask questions and you, you ask questions from your standpoint. You ask from what you're interested in. So, so having... A diverse of, of cultures and and sexes and genders and sexualities is is, is going to only to to, to question things um, more thoroughly and from more diverse perspectives and, and and bring us the truth.
0: Here's one last question we got from our audience. What's the danger of making implications about humans from animal behavior? Have we evolved from Darwin on doing that?
1: um we have you have to be very careful about making assumptions about um human behavior from 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 animals um and i say that in the book you know and and it's something that 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 certain you know some people do a lot and they'll say oh because lobsters do that then therefore you know that means that 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 human women you know will will will, uh, should be like that and and such stuff is is just is ludicrous but but I think that what, 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 what you can see from, from what I'm saying in the book is just is the diversity of the female experience, you know, and just that, that we are not passive bit part players in the evolutionary story, but we are active fighters for survival in the same way that males are. Um, and so, you know, that those are the lessons to be learned. You, you, can take, you can take some sort of general lessons from that. And so as we wrap up here, Lucy, what's,
0: what's the next question you're asking in your research?
1: Oh, uh, well, you know, I sort of feel like, because um, I didn't write, I came across loads of great stories about males, because I think that, you know, these, these stereotypes do males just as much a disservice as to, 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 to males as, as they do to females. So I think a book about males is probably next on the cards. Cock and bull, I want to call
0: it. <laughs> <laughs> that zoologist Lucy Cook. She's also a broadcaster and the author of Bitch on the Female of the Species. Lucy, it's been a great pleasure.
1: It's been an absolute pleasure, Jen. Thank you so much for the opportunity.
0: Today's producers were Catherine Fink and Paige Osborne. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk again tomorrow. This is 1A.